This is an example of speech. Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think, a free from oversight and free of charge, thoughtfully improvised, expletive deleted, details expanded, whistle blow hard, evergreen topical heat wave of an ongoing conversation turned podcast in which we discuss politics, global affairs, current events, and anything else that bubbles up from the unmoderated comment section in our brains. We urge you to join us and tell us what you think. To listen to the archives, go to stoneduckmedia.com or tellmewhattothink.com. You can contact us at tmwttpod at gmail.com. I'm Producer Pete. You can contact me on Twitter at Bloated Nemesis. And your host is Charles Minnick, who is on Twitter at Green underscore Weird, which is spelled W-Y-R-D. This episode, Charles speaks with candidate for congressional office in New Jersey's 8th District, Hector Oseguera, to tell you what to think about the nexus of corruption and pollution. Prepare to get righteous and reactionary. This is Tell Me What to Think. Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think. We're here again with friend of the show, Hector Oseguera, to talk about the nexus of corruption and pollution. Welcome back to the show, Hector. Thanks for having me back on. I'm glad to be back as your returning chair. <laughs> So, we had a pretty extensive conversation with your uh, elegant Gordian Knot solution to corruption widely with the beneficial ownership rule. Uh, what did you think about this pollution nexus? So, I'm glad you asked. Um, I've got quite a couple of stories to share with you. There, We can start with uh, local New Jersey issues. I've got a couple of stories that touch upon things that are going on in New Jersey that highlight exactly how uh, corruption weaves its way into the environmental space. And perhaps later on, we can sort of uh, zoom out and I can give you a couple of international issues that have really highlighted how um the global multinationals, the BPs and the shells of the world uh, bribe uh, governments in the global south like Mexico and Nigeria leading to environmental degradation and sometimes the sham trials and eventual execution of environmental activists. Right, it's always the people who bring up the, who make the noise that are held responsible. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start New Jersey. What's wonderful? What's happening there? So, in the town of Ringwood, New Jersey, you have a Superfund site. So, a little bit of background for those who are not that familiar. A Superfund site is essentially when the EPA um, comes into an area and designates a specific site for cleanup. Um, because of contamination, usually because of hazardous materials. What you have in Ringwood, New Jersey, is a Superfund site that was originally controlled by the Ford Motor Company. They had a very controversial site that was essentially polluting the soil, and the federal government came in and designated this site in Ringwood as a Superfund site, right? What happens is the Ford Motor Company, being the colossal giant that it is, corrupts and bribes the New Jersey uh, government and the EPA, eventually leading to this Superfund site being uh, removed from the Superfund designation. Now, what you come to find out is not much later, the contamination spreads so far 
that the federal government has to come back in and redesignate this as a Superfund site. You know, goes through core. Um, How many thousands lot. of hours? <laughs> yeah. So what eventually ends up happening is that the federal government has to settle with the Ford Motor Company for what ended up being a $21 million settlement. Honestly, not that much money. That's a pittance not, compared to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially compared to the damage that was done, right? Um, one of the sadder parts of this is that the Ramapo Turtle Clan, an indigenous native community living in the Ringwood area, had their native lands polluted and leading to, I mean, something that would forever affect their land, the people living on that land, and the natural habitat. So this this goes back almost 50 years wow. to when Ford came into the area and essentially started dumping toxic sludge uh, that was produced by a factory in Mawa, New Jersey, and started essentially just dumping it in the forests. And essentially what is something you're going to see repeated is that this was an area where not just a native community lived, but a lot of low, it was a low income area. So like most other corrupt practices, you find them targeting people who are not going to fight back. Right. So this happens uh, with nuclear dumping grounds right mm -hmm. so a lot of people are really into nuclear as an alternative to um our fossil fuel dependency but unfortunately what you find with nuclear is that it has really significant pollution associated with it um it and creates permanent problems permanent problems mm -hmm. and then so where do they put this nuclear waste right it's always near very poor communities that are at first hesitant to even bring up that there's a problem. Once the problem becomes so blatant that people can no longer ignore it, the government tries to shut the people up with these very low dollar settlements. And essentially it's going to cause a problem forever. This is not something that's going to go away over a year or two years this waste is there essentially forever and people find that their livelihoods are permanently destroyed wow um do you know what type of pollution is present in ringwood what type of sludge they were dumping yeah i have it somewhere here it's like uh iron oxide oh, okay. was being dumped into the forest uh dioxane which i'm not that familiar with but doesn't sound all that healthy Dioxin, yeah, that's a pretty dangerous poison. And yeah, they, they were essentially, they had barrels full of this stuff and were just dumping it in the forest outside of Ringwood. Wow. I mean, that can't have been legal even at the time, right? Someone had no, to have known. <laughs> yeah, so, so that actually ties very neatly into the next story that I want to talk about. And I like this story specifically because it's your classic New Jersey corruption story complete with mafia ties <laughs> so in 2017 a man by the name of michael d'angelo who is a dirt broker i don't know if you've ever what heard is much of yeah so <laughs> these guys collect dirt and sell it as fill for um people who want to for developers who are going to build on a site right so you want to build on a site but the elevation is not exactly what you want. So okay. you go to these dirt brokers and they will sell you tons and tons of dirt, which has to um, meet certain environmental standards. And because you can't just use any sort of fill, right? If somebody's right. gonna live on top of it and it's toxic dirt, you're essentially gonna poison the person that's gonna live on top of it, right? Hmm. So Mr. D'Angelo has ties to the Bonanno crime family. And he was caught passing off dirt that was supposed to be clean, but was actually contaminated with a toxic waste. <laughs> and he was fined a mere $100,000 by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. What? A hundred thousand dollars, and so, <laughs> and so, you're gonna find this is another thing that you find often is that the fines are not enough 
to deter the person from doing it because they've actually made so much money that they'll say, fine, I'll pay your $100,000 and I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And lo and behold, less than a year later, Mr. D'Angelo was caught doing the same exact thing. How much? Selling, selling dirt that was supposed to be clean to contractors, which is actually chock full of all sorts of toxic substances. Where was he sourcing this dirt? Was somebody paying him to get rid of it? Yes. So he was... So this is, again, who do they choose? They choose vulnerable people. So this man, D'Angelo, was caught selling what was supposed to be clean dirt to elderly farm owners in Marlboro, New Jersey. Uh, of course, people don't have to wear with all the check or exactly. the resources people, to fight. Exactly. People who are essentially the most vulnerable are always the top-of-the-line victims for people like this. So these crooks seek out those who are, you know, and, and it, it kind of happens with all mafia-related businesses. They'll go to a guy and say, you know, I got a really good deal for you. You're not going to be able to turn this one down. I've got something really good for you. And, you know, the person finds a deal. They're usually strapped for cash. And they say, you know what? I'll take it. Unsuspecting victims who are just trying to get away with what they can and always end up being the victims of these corrupt people who are essentially screwing over not just the victim themselves but the entire environment you know the environment is not something that's segregated to one person we all live in an environment and whether you're this elderly person's neighbor if you live in the community you're going to be subjected to this toxic dump Right, either in the wind or the water, it's going to find the, its way to your house if you're in the neighborhood. And actually, yeah, lo and behold, that is exactly what you find, is that the rain deposits all of this toxic material all over the place. So there is actually no segregating. Even though there's a direct victim as the person who bought this dirt fill, it actually, the water runoff, the air that's breathed in is is going to it's not localized it's spreads out and affects people all over the place right so that reminds me of uh in india how the ganges is now its own legal entity we should apply that do you think watersheds should be their own persons here for legal purposes would that go to protecting them so yeah i mean that that's a very interesting proposal right and i've actually had a couple discussions in this area because uh not just the ganges but a couple nations in south america have taken the step of essentially giving nature rights as an individual would have rights which creates uh special protections for nature itself right Unfortunately, what I'd say is that the American legal system is not exactly built to um, recognize natural rights for the environment. So while, you know, certainly something that I think is worth looking into, we have to undergo an evolution in the way that our legal system understands nature because rights are very specific and go to one person usually mm -hmm. or to a group of people and so to create a class of nature and give natural rights to the environment itself would would really require a, essentially a real fundamental change in the way that we understand uh, natural rights and legal protections in general that's why you have something like the EPA in the US or uh, you know statewide environmental agencies because you need the way that the american legal system works you essentially have to create an agency that would uh create or perpetuate regulations that everyone has to abide by that that would be the way that uh it would work in the legal system in america but certainly something that i've seen happen in a lot of the global south I think really by necessity because the global south tends to be the the perpetual victim of these sorts of environmental shenanigans. All right, that perpetual underdevelopment for exploitation purposes. Yeah. 
Huh. Well, you said you had uh, another story. Yeah, so this one is actually in my own home district. So I'm bring I'm really bringing it back home. Um, in the 8th District of New Jersey, there's a town by the name of Kearney, right? And Kearney has what is called the Keegan Landfill. And the Keegan Landfill has, for many years, drawn the ire of many of the local residents in Kearney because um, it essentially spews so much toxic fumes that uh, local soccer games have had to be canceled. Uh, Schools have had to have entire days where the windows couldn't be opened. Uh, Residents are constantly complaining about the smell of rotten eggs. They're uh, always saying that the fumes are causing headaches and all sorts of um, health issues for the residents of Kearney. Now, why is the Keegan landfill so hard to close? I'll give you. I'll give you one guess. Uh, somebody connected to the political establishment owns it. Yes, that's exactly it. So the New Jersey Gaming Authority is a very um, powerful and po- politically connected agency in New Jersey, and they actually own the Keegan Landfill. Not only do they own the Keegan Landfill, they actually collect millions of dollars every year from dumping fees. So they charge waste companies to dump their crap in the Keegan landfill. It uh, creates all sorts of environmental hazards that all these poor regular people have to suffer. But of course, the politically connected people could care less because they're collecting millions of dollars for the New Jersey Gaming Authority who then pays off the politicians to get off their back. Right, just a little a bit to the general fund, right? Yep. And so this is actually something that I have to give my local mayor a little bit of credit for. So my local mayor, Brian Stack, actually led the effort to cap and ultimately close the Keegan landfill. So even though it's a little bit of a victory story at the end, we actually can't get too happy because this has happened before is that the residents cause a major brouhaha. The politicians get scared because they don't want to lose their positions. So they do something about it. And this actually went to the New Jersey Supreme Court. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled that the gaming authority could keep the... The last time it was closed, it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court actually ordered them to reopen the landfill so even if this is even though this is a little bit of a victory because we did get legislation that would move towards the closing of this site this is something that i say a lot is that we can't take our foot off the gas we can't sort of like run away with this victory and think that it's over i'm keeping my eye on this issue really closely and i am going to make sure that this is seen to to its completion because carney it's not just in my district, but when I was a kid, I used to hang out. I used to hang around Kearney a lot. I had friends who lived there. It was a really beautiful place. I know the soccer field where the games had to be canceled because of these toxic fumes. Uh, I know the school that they couldn't open the windows. And even if I didn't have this personal connection to this place, you know, nobody deserves to have their environment destroyed because somebody's making millions of dollars, right? There's no, you can't ever, it's never too expensive to do the right thing, right? If somebody were to, if I I couldn't tell somebody, you know, I'd love to get a job, but stealing money is just so profitable. I can't stop stealing, (laughs) you know? And and, and that sort of seems to be the excuse with a lot of these uh, corrupt officials is that they'll say, yeah, you know, I'd really love to do the right thing for you guys, but, you know, doing the wrong thing is just way too profitable right now. So unless I can unless I can find money elsewhere, I I, I really just can't do the right thing for you guys. Isn't that these people sound like they should be in jail for various reasons, right? Yeah. Yeah. If, if, If only we lived in a just world, right? How is it, like, only civil liability when you can destroy someone's livelihood slowly over time? Yeah, and, and, you know, I really, I mean, I couldn't stress to you how much I agree with that, right? So, let's, uh, leaving the environmental space for a moment, you think back to the 08 crash, right? All these uh, crooked banksters 
they take your money and then they gamble with it, right? If I stole your money, if I picked your pocket and then I went to a casino and I lost all your money, could I then say to the government, well, you know, I'd really love to pay this guy back, but, you know, I gambled away all his money, so so actually you have to give me money <laughs> and I'm never going to I'm not actually going to give you back your money but you've got to compensate me for my losses having stolen your money and gambled it away you know it, that's right. a crime that's a crime if I do it but apparently if these very powerful institutions do the same exact thing all of a sudden we're actually giving them money to make them equal again I mean that just doesn't sound right to me and right, they I don't didn't... think bail out the, the uh, homeowners it was just they couldn't even had just a pass through to through the homeowners and the banks would have been made solid but no the money had to go directly to them but you know that's what yeah. you get when you get hank paulson to kneel in front of nancy pelosi and beg yeah i mean when your uh, cabinet is essentially picked out of goldman sachs and citibank there's really no uh there's no depths to which they won't sink to help their billionaire friends right i mean Dude had lunch with the uh, CEO like what several times a month. Of course, they're going to pick him to be Treasury Secretary. Yeah, shameless plug. There's a great book. It's not even mine, and I don't know the author, but it's called All the President's Bankers, and it tracks very neatly how essentially three or four banks have essentially co-opted the Treasury Department since for the last at least hundred years. I mean, we're really coming up on at least a hundred years of four banks cycling through the treasury department and so when you come to 08 and the people who caused that crash are literally the grandchildren of the people who caused the crash of 1907 and the children of the people who caused the crash in 1928 um you kind of start to recognize why these things keep happening and why actually nobody does anything about it Huh, maybe generational wealth isn't what it's cracked up to be. Maybe. <laughs> uh, that book is by Naomi Prince, by the way, if any yeah. of our listeners. <laughs> Naomi Prince, yeah. It's it's actually it's a great book, and, and I think uh, it's worth anybody's read because it's not that long, and it, it actually tracks very neatly um, how Citibank, Goldman Sachs, and uh, what is now Bank of America. Forget the fourth one, but essentially a very small number of uh, economic elites I mean own our treasury department um, something I, I never stop railing against is the Federal Reserve because uh, the Federal Reserve they try to maintain what's called full employment right and is this sort of Orwellian term of like just enough unemployment to keep the economy going right, right. so just enough desperation Exactly. Just enough desperation to keep people wanting to to climb up this ladder, right? And, <clears throat> pardon, but when you look at the economics of this system, you come to see how invested the elites are in creating false scarcity so that people have to keep scratching at each other to get just ahead enough so that they're not drowning, Right, we have a fiat currency, but the banks have the first uh, nibble at the trough, as it were, through that primary dealer window, which is exactly. an underappreciated benefit that they seem to enjoy and aren't going to get rid of anytime soon. Of course not. And if you ask them, they'll say, you know, yeah, I really hate it, but, you know, it's a necessary evil because without it, you know, we'd be subject to all these uh, boom and bust cycles that thankfully we don't have to suffer because we're in control forget the fact that we live through we've lived through at least two boom and bust cycles just in my lifetime right and, and what's up with that repo market <laughs> yeah what's up with that repo market indeed <laughs> and yeah well, it looks like we're about to go into another one yeah i mean that's sort of the thing about it right a lot of the people in my generation have put off buying a home because so many of us expect the market to crash that people are in at least if they have the most of us don't have the money to buy a home but if we do those of us those of us who actually do have saved up enough or have inherited enough to buy a home are essentially waiting for the next crash so that we can get a home cheaply and i mean i don't know an economy where that is a healthy state of being where people are like 
no, you know, I'd really rather just wait till this whole house of cards comes down before I start buying stuff. <laughs> I mean, you can't really sit on money that long because, if, again, it depreciates value thanks to the Federal Reserve. Yeah, so for the last, again, 100 or so years, we've had uh, an inflationary market where the, as you get older, you see prices increase. If you actually look at the 1800, they had the reverse, pr ironically, prior to the creation of the Federal Reserve. You, they, if you had asked somebody who was an older gentleman at the, or an older person at the end of the 1800s, they actually would have told you the opposite story. When they were a child, things were much more expensive, and they lived through a deflationary market where the average person actually grew their individual buying power and were actually able to enjoy a better standard of living because holding on to money made it more valuable. Now, the banks figured this out and they say, you know, we really would prefer if these, guys, if these people would stop sitting on their money and just gave it to us because we know what to do with it. These, these, poor, these poor farmers, they don't know what to do with their money. It, it'd actually be much put to much better use in our hands. Right, it's way better to put all of those decisions in a few people's hands than like a million different individual taxpayers or potentially homeowners. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, that deflationary curve was actually pretty beneficial and basically built America at a critical time. Yeah, it, it absolutely did. And, you know, if people like me and a lot of the challengers that are going against the system were to get an office... I think it might not be the worst thing in the world to um, decrease the money supply, thereby uh, lifting. So what we want is for your dollar to be worth more, not less every year, right? Mm -hmm. So of course the banks don't want that. The banks love inflation. They want inflation to go on forever. Uh, that way, their billions become trillions and become quadrillions but the average person has to keep struggling to keep up with the market so it again it creates this artificial scarcity that keeps the average working class person struggling to keep going but the bankers can essentially they can sit on their piles and piles of money and they don't care because the only people who are whose incomes are exceeding inflation are the the tippy top owners all right the ones who own all the uh, social and wealth capital so exactly. what do you think uh, you would do if say in the golden future when you do get elected to increase the velocity of the m2 money supply you know put more money in through people's hands which has been proven to lower the gini coefficient yep so where you almost uh like excite me when you talk about this stuff because this is like right up my alley right so one one thing that i think we should really look into is a 21st century glass-steagall um you know what glass-steagall was i'm sure right yeah well explain to the listeners so glass-steagall was a regulation that was put in um right after the market crash that essentially told uh investment banks like goldman sachs you're not allowed to take deposits like your regular everyday um, retail bank. So you put your money in a savings account. That savings account is federally insured so that if something were to happen, if the market crashes, your money is not going to disappear. It's federally insured. And under that money is supposed to be safe. Whereas investment banks, people know if you go to a Goldman Sachs, you're always risking that your investment might might be depleted, might go down to zero right. because you, you're actually gambling. You know, if you're going to invest, yeah, you might make money, but you also might lose money. And that's the whole nature of investment is that and that's what this whole capitalist bastion is supposed to be about is that. Yeah, you can take a risk. You might make money, but you also might lose it. Right, you have to accept now, the consequences. Exactly, right? You have to accept the fact that you're taking a risk. Now, the banks lobbied heavily for a long time to get rid of Glass-Steagall because what a perfect system that they can take deposits 
and also gamble those deposits knowing that if things go to crap there's they're not going to be on the hook for it they can actually turn to the federal government and say no 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 this is all federally insured so you have to give me back my money i'm not giving it back to the person who deposited it i'm telling them we lost it but you actually have to let me recoup my losses which creates a perverse incentive so what I would do is I would reinstate Glass-Steagall and um, put up this dividing line between um, the investment banks and the retail banks. So ever since the 08 crash, what the banks have done is that they've come up with something called the Volcker Rule, named after Volcker, the prior... Paul Volcker, uh, the uh, previous yeah. federal Fed chair. Yep, the previous Fed chair, Paul Volcker. And what they uh, essentially decided is that, well, you know... I guess we're going to go halfway with you guys and we'll we're going to keep gambling your deposits but what we're going to do is that we have to keep a certain percentage liquidity so that if things go bad we can still pay off the individual depositors which I guess was sort of like a halfway deal but to me is not good enough you actually have to make sure that the people are insured. The everyday mom and pop depositor should not be on the line. But the banks should understand that, yeah, listen, the game is capitalism. So if you gamble and lose, nobody's giving you your money back. You've lost and you actually have to accept the consequences of your bad bets. I mean, the reason that the whole market crashed in 08 is because the banks were giving out... Um, home loans fraudulently to people they knew would never pay them back because they knew that when the house of cards comes down they'll just turn around to the federal government and say oh well guys look give us some money and we have the house and we have the house right so that you have the robo uh, uh, foreclosures going on where a lot of people who actually were keeping up with their payments still got foreclosed on because it got their uh, mortgage got sold to a different bank. And so they were paying their original bank back, not the person who had bought their bank afterwards. And so nope, a lot of no tr- notification or transfer of paperwork yep. and yep. money just and went so- down a dark hole because those banks didn't give the payments back. Exactly. So essentially all that money was lost and they still got foreclosed on because they were essentially paying the wrong person. And so, again, it just goes back to creating all these really perverse incentives that end up screwing the everyday person. But these wealthy elites get to collect their money, go home happy. And then when things go sour for them, they turn back to us and say, oh, well, give it up. Right, um, pockets a little shy. You better uh, cough it up, or we're gonna make your financial system unstable. Yeah, be a shame if your paycheck didn't clear. Yeah, basically. So, what do you think you would do if with the uh, Federal Reserve Act in office? Yeah, so like, right? I'm. A, I'm. If, if we're gonna, if we're gonna look on the left-right spectrum of like American politics, which is something I disagree with, but I, I figure that's a conversation for another day. But um, so I'm I'm a progressive, right? And part of that is that I sort of cast away this uh, left-right division. I don't think there is left and right anymore. I think there's either grassroots and or elites. But one person who uh, sort of caught my eye early in my political sort of like awakening was uh, a Texas doctor by the name of Ron Paul, and one of his uh, pet issues is the Federal Reserve. So I think that at the bare minimum, we need to audit the Federal Reserve, right? They should make a full accounting of the loans that they've given out and tell us who's getting the money and why are they getting it, right? So to, here in America, we only have two uh, government agencies that cannot ever be audited and refuse to be audited because they say we're actually too big for your prying eyes. And that's the Defense Department. So the military industrial complex tells us, no, 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 you can't audit us. Uh, we could be t- they could be taking boatloads of money and throwing it in a wood chipper for all we know. And the Federal Reserve, who essentially is uh, in charge of maintaining America's financial position as a global hegemon. And 
So they loan to banks, not just in America, but across the globe. And one of the big things I would push is to fully audit the Federal Reserve immediately. We need a full accounting of where the money's gone, what it's gone towards, and what they're doing with it. Uh, because these systems are a haven for corruption. You know, you can't just put trillions and trillions of dollars out there and pretend like it's all going to be okay. Because it's not. It never is. It always ends up horrendously screwing over our system. Always. Do you think you would take a look at that Section 13 authority that they kind of abused in 2008? Absolutely, right? So um, we're talking about the quantitative easing stuff, right? Yep. Yeah, so quantitative easing, right? Uh, My, you know, when I took econ, one of the sort of principal issues of economics is that um, there... It's not it's not so much about how much money is out there in absolute terms, but in relative terms. Right. So it's only how much someone owns relative to another person that's relevant in an economic system. So when you have something like quantitative easing, that's constantly dumping money into the system, it creates a an environment where one day our government is going to lose the ability to affect the market anymore. And unfortunately, by the time they realize that, it's going to be way too late. So Zimbabwe, right? Zimbabwe is the most recent example of this gone awry, but people can look at the uh, Weimar Republic and essentially what happens in a system of hyperinflation is that your money's not worth the paper it's printed on. And that breeds Um, black markets for essentially everything and quantitative easing is exactly that they're dumping tons of money into the financial system it essentially perpetuates the inflation that they want to see and the only people who end up losing are everyday people who have to buy goods who need to buy fuel food who have to pay their rent and their buying power is significantly diminished because, you know, government agencies like the Federal Reserve are constantly increasing the money supply, thereby making every single dollar less valuable. All right. So if you could explain, what do you think the problem is in the repo market currently? I don't know. We may have gotten slightly off the beaten track here, but... (laughs) Yeah, so the repo market, what... I look into is, and this is again something that I uh, take from Ron Paul, is that we have to look at the bond market, right? So the bond market is always going to be your canary in the coal mine. Right. It reflects it's, future intent. Exactly. It reflects future, what is coming down the line, right? So you have repo which is like short-term borrowing right and that's government securities your treasuries right and i mean that that is sort of like a black hole at this point because you have so much malinvestment after the 08 crash that it's really hard to read the repo market so what a lot of people are saying now is that there's too much illiquidity in the market, which tells the Federal Reserve to dump more money into the system, thereby create, theoretically creating more liquidity, but then essentially washes out the money supply. Right. So, so I, I, I guess my solution essentially is, is the Federal Reserve audit, right? Mm-hmm. Because once we get a full accounting of what's being done, we can adequately assess whether there really is a liquidity problem in the repo market or whether we should actually rein in the Federal Reserve's ability to continuously print more money. Right, it's not helping the government balance its books. It absolutely isn't. And and that's really my uh, big fear, right, is that we get into a system or we get into a situation where you can't print enough short-term uh, T notes, treasury bonds, to increase 
the liquidity. Nobody will buy the short-term debt because nobody believes that it'll be worth anything in the future. Right. The economy should be in much, a much, basically a total state of collapse for that to happen, not like a housing crisis. Yeah, and and again, that it's and it's never going to be. It's always going to be like a domino effect, and nobody knows which which domino it's going to be. So, if if you'd give me the time to do a little theorizing or like predictive predicting uh, in the economy, uh, something that I truly truly fear is that it's going to be the student loan market next. That's that's the market that I watch. And that is sort of the uh, debt market that I really fear will foment the next crash. Essentially, essentially, so many students will um, will default on their loans that it'll create a domino effect that will destroy our economy. Right, people are carrying six figures of debt, and they're notionally supposed to be the petty bourgeoisie supporting the yeah. rest of the economy through their spending and innovation. Right? <laughs> yeah, and and I'll tell I'll be I'll be upfront. You know, I'm one of those people with like six figures in student loan debt, with uh, no idea how many more decades I'll be paying it off. You know, and again, it's creating a market of indentured servitude amongst an entire generation where um, a, a huge chunk of our disposable income is going to repay loans that may never be paid off. And it reminds me a lot of the subprime mortgage market. And that's what I truly, truly, truly fear is going to create the next crash. Yeah, it keeps getting bigger every day. What is it? One point seven trillion dollars of memory yep. serves. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one point seven trillion dollars in debt. Now, do you know how much the Trump tax cuts cost our economy? Oh, well, like mm, one point one point nine trillion. So <laughs> we actually we actually could have instead of instead of giving these tax cuts to multi-billion-dollar corporations, we literally could have paid all the student loans off, and our economy actually might be better off for it. Right, that would have increased that velocity of M two money supply thing because all those people could have paid off their debts, and uh, I don't know what would you do with if you didn't have to service that debt every month. <laughs> I would definitely probably pay off my car note right off the bat and own my car so and that's what a lot of people a lot of people are going to do something like that right so some people are going to pay off other debts that they have some people might take that into the housing market and lo and behold finally become um homeowners some people are just gonna fucking spend the money and they're gonna end up throwing so much new money into the system that our economy might have experienced a real boom not this artificial um stock buying boom that we've seen that is again another house of cards but people might have actually put more money into the system some people might have started a new business right you know it, it could have been it could have been actually a tremendous opportunity for our economy but unfortunately we always have to take care of the uh multi-trillionaires before right people need more accounting tricks not genuine economic growth <laughs> yeah uh, well uh what international story did you have wonderful so okay so i've got two really great um international corruption stories right does the deep water horizon spill ring a bell oh yeah so in 2010 um bp has this um oil you know uh tanker off the in i think it was uh, right off the Mexico. coast of louisiana yeah, yeah the gulf right and it starts spilling tons and tons of oil into the Gulf, a complete destruction of the environment in the area. Now, the United States is already cozy enough with these uh, oil companies, but a lesser known uh, government that was bought off was the Mexican government, right? Right. So, unfortunately, Mexico is not as big or as powerful as the U.S. government is. So, BP got to work bribing the Mexican government. 
and they paid let me find the number here i it, it was a another ridiculously low number um and because the mexican government is really cozy with bp they paid jesus 25 and a half million dollars but actually they gave them credit for 15 million dollars having you know having done some sort of prepayment oh so they God. actually gave them credit for that so actually <laughs> the mexican government only got 10 million dollars which again is not going to even make a close to a dent in the environmental destruction that was wreaked by the gallons and gallons of crude oil that essentially wrecked a natural habitat. Yeah, polluted basically almost every inch of golf course shoreline. So, yeah. I mean, how many dollars do you think that is per mile of Mexican uh, coast shoreline there? <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly am not the greatest at math. But so that's probably like dollars per... Yeah. A, dollar, yeah. a couple dollars per, you know, few yards. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and, mm. and completely destroying an economy, completely destroying the livelihood of thousands and thousands of people... You know, some people forget the businesses. Imagine the people who just go to those beaches to enjoy them. Their ability to enjoy their natural habitat is destroyed. The fish are gone. Almost every species that was living there is destroyed. And a, another corrupt government decides, you know, pay us off and we'll leave you alone. Right, because in government or out of it, they're still going to have the money to enjoy. Yeah. Ugh, that's terrible. And the last story that I will tell you about is um, about an, a Nigerian uh, environmental activist. His name was Ken Sarowiwa. He's a writer, um, a human rights and environmental activist who came to find that the Shell Corporation was engaged in widespread environmental destruction in Nigeria. Right, the Nigerian Delta, or Niger Delta. Yep, yep. So, you know, this guy's going around. He's an author, right? So it's not like he's a militia man. It's not like he's got guns. All he has is his ability to organize others and his ability to speak to people. He addresses the UN in 1996 trying to bring light to you know his home country being destroyed by an oil giant um what happened what ends up happening is that shell gets in touch with the nigerian government they uh, arrest this man for murder they hold a sham trial where People said that he wasn't even in the country at the time of these murders. They hold a sham trial. They convict him. They convict him, take away his ability to appeal his conviction, and he was eventually hung. Wow. Yeah. A man that all he had was his ability to organize and his ability to write was so dangerous that... Um, the shell company had to collude with the Nigerian government to execute this man, essentially. I mean, I don't know what else to call it other than an execution. Um, eventually, his family uh, fought back and were able to secure a settlement worth, I think, tens of millions, where Shell was able to uh, keep their good name, shall we say, <laughs> and not and not admit to what they did but the documentation speaks for itself and it was clear that the nigerian government was working hand in hand with shell to execute this man who just wanted to make sure that the environment would be safe for another generation right if you don't have access to the water and the land you have virtually no livelihood if you're you know basic subsistence levels so of course yeah. the, it's the most passionate cause in the world or should be. Yeah. No, it absolutely is. And, you know, for a lot of people, you know, that's really all they have is the land that they were raised on. And that area, the Nigerian Niger Delta, is a continued source of instability with oil smuggling because shell facilities just get raided and people cart off boatloads of oil and 
oil byproducts. Yeah. yeah th- so that's why I am real like if taking it back to policy, I'm really in favor of uh, AOC's Green New Deal. We actually have to, you know, I was raised in an America where we were taught to dream and to think about how things could be better in this world, right? I don't know at what point we sort of lost the idea that we could dream of a better world and hope for things to get better. But we have, with the same sort of oomph that we said that we could go to the moon, right? Going to the moon in the 1950s and 60s sounds ridiculous, right? You're going to come off the planet and you're going to go millions of miles away to the moon. But we didn't. We dreamt and we put forth our, you know, engineering strength and our scientific know-how and we got it done. We have to do the same. We have to take the environment in the same way, right? Eventually, there's not going to be any more oil. Eventually, there's not going to we were going to have pulled out every last drop. And we can't wait for that moment to start to think about what comes next. We have to start transitioning now, this very moment. We have to start transitioning away from fossil fuels, from any sort of um, extraction method that destroys the environment, whether it be fracking. You know, there are all all these methods of extracting energy that are polluting our planet, are destroying environments, are destroying natural habitats, and we actually have to cut them off immediately because we can't wait until the last drop of oil is pulled out of the ground right. we have to start deciding now what our future is going to look like we have to start moving over towards electric vehicles we have to look at renewable sources of energy and a very simple fix right for me is to immediately rescind all fossil fuel subsidies so the fossil fuel companies are incredibly profitable. I'm not sure if you've noticed. Right. They make but, their money off of human misery, hence the you know, proximity of low-income housing and oil refineries, for instance, in the Mississippi Delta. Yeah. And so we actually have to cut this exploitation, this exploitation economy right out of our system. We have to realize that if we were to stop subsidizing these destructive methods of energy creation, uh, renewable sources are actually just as, uh, they actually cost the same thing once you account for the subsidies that we give to these fossil fuel companies. So one thing that I would immediately fight for is, you know, the removal of all fossil fuel subsidies. I think that's a really simple fix that would signal to these companies, you know what? You've lived high and mighty off of our environment for long enough and it's over. Like the you know, the game is over. You have to you're going to have to compete with every other energy source and maybe people just start to decide that you're not worth the trouble. I feel like we can bring this right back to that financial question that we were asking earlier. Those companies could likewise do without their subsidies. It seems kind of unfair and un-American that you know, certain patronage networks continue to just get blank subsidies, blank checks, basically. Exactly, and they're blank checks coming from you and me. You know, Our tax dollars are going to already profitable businesses to keep them profitable, to keep bribing politicians, to keep their subsidies round and round it goes right but not far enough yeah so it will collapse at some point absolutely because it's it's the the system's so full of perverse incentives that yeah it's essentially a house of cards and one day it'll fall and one day you know the system can't keep perpetuating itself uh, well, let's take it a bit personal before we get off. Tell me what you think about running for Congress. <laughs> well, honestly, this has been the experience of a lifetime. I got to be honest. Um, the reception has been tremendous. People have been really helpful. Uh, we held our first meet and greet this week, and we had a packed house, you know, right in my opponent's backyard, right? Um, in an area that is very friendly to the establishment. We had so many people come out that our host was actually concerned if we could fit that many people in her home. Um, so there's definitely an appetite out there for change. 
the more I the more I talk to people, the more I get my message out. The reception has been tremendous. The people really do get what's going on, and they know that you know change is at our doorstep. All we have to do is open that door and welcome in a brighter future. Right, the ideas are out there. We just have to start listening to the right people, or at least be willing to you know doing the right thing you know it's never it's never too hard to do the right thing it's it's just that people have been so used to the wrong thing that they sort of start to think that because this is the way it is this is the way it should be and we need dreamers man we need people to you know like i said i was raised in an america where we could say, you know, I don't like the way things are going and I actually want to do something to change it. And I don't know when people got lulled into this complacency of, oh, well, I guess this is just the way it is. But thankfully, it seems like the public in general is waking up and saying, you know what? It doesn't have to be this way. And that reception is magnificent. I've met people from all sorts of walks of life every race religion all age groups and we're all coming together to say what has been won't be anymore right or it's kind of a question of fear is it isn't it it's like are you more afraid of what's happening now or more afraid of what's the future could be yeah so i have that talk with, with i have a friend who's in the military and we actually have a talk like that all the time it's like people tend to default towards keeping things the way they are because change seems so scary and as a species as just as humans we tend to be conservative with a small c of you know i'd rather i'd ra i'd rather the devil i know over the devil i don't it's just come to a point that the devil you know is so hideous that you will literally take anything else and in a lot of ways i think that's why trump is in office right now because people were so disgusted with the way that things had gone for so long that they were literally like, all right, an orange clown, I'll take it. Right? Uh, she's just left such a huge political opening. It shouldn't have shouldn't have been so difficult to oppose. No, and, and I agree. And, and, you know, one of the main arguments for my campaign is that the people who are most responsible for Trump's election are the Democrats. You know, how could you run against a racist orange clown and lose? You know, like, how inept and incompetent do you have to be to lose to somebody like trump if anything it's an indictment of the democratic party more than anything else absolutely everybody who had a hand in that shouldn't be able to show their face out in public still yeah i agree and you know in new jersey just to bring it back to jersey a little bit um i don't know if you're familiar with van drew um he is the new jersey congressman who recently left the Democratic Party to become a Republican. He was he used to be billed as Trump's favorite Democrat, right? So, a little known thing is that everybody knew who this guy was. He was a Democrat, but he opposed every Democratic issue out there from marriage equality, he was a uh, pro NRA. He was essentially a Republican. Democrat in name only. Democrat in name only. And for a long time, progressives in his district would tell the Democratic Party, like, how can you support this guy? It's like, it's a Machiavellian, it's a Machiavellian bargain that you're essentially selling out all your values because this is the guy who can win in this district. And anybody who had a hand in promoting Van Drew should be forced out of politics and should be told, you know what, you have no place here because you're an idiot. Right? We don't value your opinion. You clearly make bad decisions or apparently terrible compromises. Yeah. This is a democracy. You're not entitled to your seat. Yeah. You actually should have to go out there and make an argument for your seat. And if your ideas are terrible and if you are willing to sacrifice all your values to hold on to power, maybe you shouldn't have any power. 
<laughs> right? How much do you want that power versus how much do you have it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thanks, Hector. It's been an amazing conversation as always. Uh, good luck. Hopefully, we can have you on again before your race. Yeah, I'd love to come on anytime. Oh, Thank right. you so much for having me on again, and I really look forward to our conversation again. Alright, thanks a lot, Hector. Have a good night, Charles. I really appreciate you having me on, and I look forward to being your three-time returning champion. Destroy the myth that will break our chains. Break your chains! environmental degradation and sometimes the sham trials and eventual execution of environmental activists.